0: Thank you so much, Kyle, for those songs. They were food for our soul through music. And being able to sing good theology is actually one of the gifts of the Reformation. We have so much to be thankful for, especially this year as we celebrate this 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I've been looking forward to this year for a couple of years now knowing that we were going to be able to celebrate this this event that happened 500 years ago. Um, And looking forward in the calendar, I actually knew that there were going to be five Sundays this year, and I was incredibly excited because I know that there are also five solas, or five principles that these Reformers rallied around in unity. Sola Scriptura, which we heard Sergio expound on last week, that uh, the authority of any person only comes from Scripture alone. No man, no pope, no counsel, no creed, no nothing except Scripture. Sola fide, which we're going to be talking about this morning. Faith alone, salvation or justification is by faith alone. Sola gratia, which we're going to talk about next week. That is through grace alone. And then we go on to... Solus Christus, that it is found in Christ alone. And then lastly, Soli Deo Gloria, so that it is to the glory of God alone. So the topic for today is sola fide, or faith alone. This has everything to do with the gospel and justification. It is the second of the five solas, and to them, to the reformers in 1500s and the 1600s, The only thing that mattered was getting the gospel right. And that is a topic that I am very excited about. Obviously, you saw all the kids with the t-shirts on and my wife, and, and this is something that we studied back in June. We had a retreat, and we had the opportunity to dive into Scripture over these five principles over the course of three days, and look, what does the Bible say about these things? Why does it matter, though? Why does it matter to us? If you were to ask a church today, why does the Reformation matter? Unfortunately, many churches wouldn't have an idea. So many professing Christians have no idea why a dead German that lived 500 years ago is so important, let alone secular society. They have no idea why a guy that lived so many years ago has any relevance for us today, especially when he lived in Germany. But he does matter. And the Reformation matters because of what Pastor Patrick said last week. What we do here as Christ Bible Church, what we have done today, is because of what Martin Luther did 500 years ago. In reforming the church, he gave us the ability to have the Bible in our own Language, to preach to you in the vernacular, to be able to enjoy the communion, to see people baptized. This is why the Reformation matters, and this is why it still matters. So, what exactly did Martin Luther do that was so important 500 years ago? To answer that question, I want to take you on a very quick tour of Christian history. 1,500 years in five minutes. You ready? All right, let's go. We're going to go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go through a real quick tour in the Bible. We're going to start in the book of Acts. This is Luke's account of Paul and Peter and the the apostles and what the Holy Spirit did through them in the early church. By this time in Paul's ministry, he's heading back to Jerusalem, but he has to make one final stop in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20 beginning in verse 817 he uh, says that from Miletus he was sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church the Ephesian church and they had come to him he said to them you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears with trials with which came upon me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all among you, all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole Purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, Be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish you each one of you with tears. Paul is warning the Ephesian elders. I have stood on Scripture alone as my authority. I have taught you the Word of God. I have taught you the Gospel from Scripture. And yet I know that within your lifetime, it is going to become distorted. Fast forward to Paul in prison, writing to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however continuing the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus my authority Paul says is from scripture alone and your salvation Timothy is in faith in Christ Jesus We have three of those four solos right here in this verse. But yet Paul is still telling Timothy, but watch out. Imposters will come and they're going to teach a different gospel. They're going to teach a false gospel. But you, Timothy, cling to the inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly what we heard from Sergio last week. Keep going. Peter, writing to the church in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Before he dies, he writes shortly after Paul wrote to Timothy the second time. He says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Paul is warning the Ephesian church, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul is warning Timothy, beware that there are going to be people in your church that may rise up and teach a false gospel. Peter is telling his church they're on the doorstep. And lastly, Jude, verses 3 and 4, the brother of our Lord writes this, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Beware of false teachers. Be ready for false teachers. False teachers are on the doorstep false teachers are here. John MacArthur has said, Satan is most effective in the church when he comes not as an open enemy, but as a false friend. Not when he persecutes the church, but when he joins it. Not when he attacks the pulpit, but when he stands in it. Beloved, I hope and pray that that never happens to Christ Bible Church But this was the condition of the church in Martin Luther's day. This was the condition of the Roman Catholic Church by the time Martin Luther was born. Councils had been held to answer theological questions about the nature of Christ, to answer about what texts belonged in sacred scripture. But ultimately, those theological questions began to go by the wayside as political questions arose. And by 1418, the Council of Constance was completed, to end the great schism. This was a time when there were two or three popes all at the same time. The church called a council and they wanted to reform the church from within. And this is how they reformed the church. When they elected a new pope, they said about him that he is the one who holds his power directly from Christ and everyone is bound to obey him. This is when papal authority became paramount. This is when the doctrine that if the pope does say something that contradicts scripture, the pope is right. And this was also the council that promised a man from Bohemia safe passage to ask some questions about him, about how he wanted to try to reform the church. That man's name was John Hus. He was basically lied to arrested, put in prison for six months, tried, found guilty of heresy, and ultimately burned at the stake after being led past a burning pile of his books while he was naked with a dunce cap on his head, with demons and devils drawn on it. What was his heresy? Preaching the gospel from the Bible to the people in their language so that they could be saved. He believed in the principle of the authority of Scripture alone and not the Pope. He believed that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He was preaching the doctrines he found from one John Wycliffe. Wycliffe was a pre-reformer. We would know him as the morning star of the Reformation. He wanted the people of England to have the Bible in their language, so he took the Latin Vulgate and began to translate it into English. That was a death sentence to him. But as an Oxford Don and as a, an, a, an academic, they tried to get to him multiple times but were unable to put him on trial. Ultimately, Wycliffe died of a stroke in 1384. Hoos continued to teach these ideas of Wycliffe. He found in Wycliffe a man who understood the scriptures. But he was ordered to stop. He wouldn't, though. He couldn't do anything else other than preach the gospel from the word of God. And as he was tied to that stake that day, he said to the crowd, Lord Jesus, please have mercy on my enemies. History also records he said one other thing, several other things, but I only want to share one other thing. He said, today you cook a goose. The name hus in Czech means goose. Today you cook a goose, but in 100 years a swan will arise which you will prove unable to boil or roast. The Pope was so frustrated about what was happening that he ordered the bones of John Wycliffe to be exhumed, burned, ground into a powder, and then thrown into the River Swift because he didn't want anybody to honor Wycliffe. Unbeknownst to Hus, he would become quite prophetic because 102 years later, a young man, a young Augustinian monk named Martin Luther, would nail the 95 Theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther was born in a time of false worship, where false worship dominated the church. It can only be described as a false church. The word of God was pushed out of the center of the church. It was pushed out of church life. It was pushed out of everything. And the church went haywire. Doctrine was wrong, practice was wrong, the church service, everything was off kilter. Luther's early life was that of an upper middle class family involved in mining in the towns of Eisleben and then Mansfeld. Luther would go off to university in Erfurt and receive his bachelor's degree in, uh, in, at Erfurt and then go on to earn a master's degree in law. It was during this time in law school, after he finished on July 2nd, 1505, that he was caught in a thunderstorm and cried out to St. Anne to save him. He made a deal at that time that if he didn't die, he would become a monk. Well, Luther didn't die. So he threw a party, gave away all his law books and entered the monastery in Erfurt. He was a very devout monk. And through all that time, He thought that he could attain justification through his monkery. He said this If ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, I was that monk. Luther was so attuned to his own sinfulness that he would spend hours in the monastery confessional asking for absolution from his sins, to the point that the other priests that were hearing his confessions got so irritated that they went to the abbot and said, Do something. So, this very wise abbot, Johann von Staupitz, recognizing Luther's potential for the church, if, if only he could get over himself, decided to have Luther begin to study and teach the Bible. He figured if Luther was so busy studying scripture that he wouldn't have busy, be busy being so self-examinatory. He wouldn't be so introspective. The other thing that he wanted to make sure to have Luther do was on a pilgrimage to Rome. So Luther did this. Luther went to Rome. He crawled up those stairs on his knees. He did everything that a normal pilgrim would do in Rome. And at the end of his time in Rome, seeing all of the decadence, seeing all of the hypocrisy, seeing all of the things in Rome that did not jive with what he was learning in scripture, he says, who knows if any of this is true. This is the Luther that comes back from Rome and continues to study scripture. Von Stalpitz reasoned that he needed to continue his studies because he was so gifted at teaching. So he did. Luther studied the Psalms. He studied Galatians, Romans, Hebrews. He earned a master's in theology and then ultimately a doctorate. All the while being driven back to the writings of Augustine, and then ultimately to Paul, to answer the question, how would I be saved? It was also during this time that there was a man in Wittenberg by the name of Johann Tetzel. And John Tetzel was commissioned by the Pope to receive indulgences because, you see, there was this building in Rome that was being built. It was called St. Peter's. Cathedral. And inside of St. Peter's Peter's cathedral, Cathedral, there was a chapel called the Sistine Chapel. And when Martin Luther was there, he saw in the Sistine chapter that there was a scaffolding built. And on this scaffolding, there was a man that was laying down on his back, painting the ceiling. And that man's name was Michelangelo. And Michelangelo did not work for free. So the Pope had to raise money to continue all of this grand building scheme. So he came up with the idea of selling indulgences. Johann Tetzel came up with this little ditty, if you will. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. You see, what they wanted to do was get their loved ones out of purgatory into heaven. So Johann Tetzel said, look, if you throw a coin in here, when it rings the coffer, guess what? Your loved one's going to get out of purgatory. They raised thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of ducats for the Pope in this way. Luther had enough. He couldn't handle it anymore. And he decided that he was going to do something about it. And this is what he said when he began his disputation. He says, Out of love for the truth and from desire to elucidate it, the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts in Sacred Theology and ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and to dispute on them in that place. Therefore, he asks that those who cannot be present and dispute with him orally shall do so in their absence by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. And he starts his dispute this way. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Thus began the dispute that has become known as the Protestant Reformation. When Luther penned and nailed those 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, he may not have fully understood what the doctrine of sola fide meant. But as he continued to study the word and teach the letters of Paul, and then the Psalms for a second time, he came to embrace the doctrine upon which the entire Reformation hinges scripture alone the doctrine of scripture alone is considered the material principle of the reformation the sole authority for life and knowledge of salvation faith alone is the formal principle this is the central teaching of the reformation and the gospel today i want to look at four questions about saving righteousness of god About the saving righteousness of God through faith alone. Four questions about the saving righteousness of God through faith alone from the text that Martin Luther could not get past in Romans. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 1, and we're going to read Romans 1, 16, and 17 this morning. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Luther didn't stop there, though. He continued reading in Romans. And in Romans 3, Paul writes this, verse 21. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the turning point in Luther's life. This is the turning point also in Paul's letter to the Roman church. You see, God rescues all believers, but only believers. This is because he is rightly angry with everyone else, as you read the rest of Romans 1, including people who have Bibles, Romans 2. Religious insiders and irreligious outsiders are all by nature under sin, and therefore under his righteous wrath. And having a Bible just makes us see that all the more. And God is right to rescue sinners because he punished sinners at the cross. So let's look at these four questions of the saving righteousness of God from Romans 1. Question number one, what is the righteousness of God? Or better stated, what is the righteousness from God? It is at least four things probably more, but we're going to give you four things. Number one, it is an attribute of God's character. It is an attribute of God's character. This is the state or condition of perfectly conforming to the law of God. It is conforming perfectly to God's holiness. This is an alien righteousness. This is a righteousness that we cannot attain on our own. We cannot grasp it, we cannot hold it, we cannot earn it, we cannot purchase it. We don't deserve it. There is nothing that we can do to gain this righteousness except by God imputing it to us, placing it upon us, giving it to us. In 1545, Luther wrote an introduction to his collected works in Latin. And this is what he had to say about this verse. This is rather long. Bear with me. This is really important, though, because you need to hear Luther's words. Meanwhile, in that same year, 1519, so this is two years after nailing up the 95 Theses, I had begun interpreting the Psalms once again, I felt confident that I was now more experienced since I had dealt in university courses with St. Paul's letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the letter to the Hebrews. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans, but thus far there had stood in my way, not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which is in chapter one, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. I hated that word, righteousness of God. Which, by the use and custom of all my teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically as referring to formal or active righteousness, as they call it, that righteousness by which God is righteous and by which he punishes sinners and the unrighteous. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love. No. Rather, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel, and through the gospel threaten us with his justice and wrath?" This was how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. Paul hated the gospel. I'm sorry, Martin Luther hated the gospel that Paul preached. Martin Luther railed against it. He says this, I meditated night and day on those words. Until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The righteousness of God is revealed in it as it is written. The righteous person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous person lives by a gift of God. That is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. But it is a passive righteousness. Righteousness. It is an alien righteousness. It is that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous person lives by faith. All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately, I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. I ran through the Scriptures from memory and found that other terms had analogous meanings. The work of God, that is, the work the that what God works in us, the power of God by which he makes us powerful, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. I exalted this sweetest word of mine, the righteousness of God, with as much love as before I had hated it with hate. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise, Afterward, I read Augustine's On the Spirit and the Letter, in which I found that I had not dared hope for. I discovered that he too interpreted the righteousness of God in a similar way, namely, as that with which God clothes us when he justifies us. Although Augustine had said it imperfectly and did not explain in detail how God imputes righteousness to us, Still, it pleased me that he taught the righteousness of God by which we are justified. So when Martin Luther nailed up those 95 theses on the Wittenberg Castle Church door, he had not fully come to an understanding of what it meant to be justified, to be made righteous by faith alone. But he would understand that gospel of grace as he continued his search of scripture, as he continued to read and study this book. So what is righteousness? It is an attribute of God's character. Secondly, it is an activity of God's person. This is where we need to go to Romans 3. Why I had you read that with me this morning. It is an activity of God's person. The righteousness of God is that central idea in Romans 3, 21 through 26. He states it four times in those six verses. The righteousness of God is revealed publicly. And in these six verses in Romans 3, Paul gives us four ways that God shows us his righteousness. Look at Romans 3, 21 through 26, really quickly. The first way is that the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed. How? How did God reveal his righteousness? Short answer, through his son, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, tells us that. John, in 1 John 1, tells us that. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. It is the exact manifestation of God, of God's righteousness. Secondly, the law and the prophets testify to it. Verse 21 of Romans 3. They testify to it. We have clear revelation from the Old Testament. The law and the prophets is Paul's way of encompassing the entire teaching of the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, the Mosaic or Israelitic covenant in Exodus 19, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, all point to justification through faith alone. The law and the prophets testify to it. Number three, God put forward Christ in a public display. What was that public display that Paul is talking about there? Where and when did God do this? He did it at the cross. He did it at the cross. Why? And this is the fourth thing that God did. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. To demonstrate righteousness. His righteousness. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul writes in Romans 5, starting in verse 6, he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. That is how God revealed it. So the righteousness of God is an attribute of God's character. It is an activity of God's person. And thirdly, it is a free gift of God to the believer. It is a free gift of God to the believer. The righteousness of God comes entirely and only through Jesus Christ. It comes only and entirely from Jesus Christ. And again, Paul in Romans 3 helps us to see this in three distinct ways. The first way the righteousness of God comes is through the faith in Jesus Christ. And we see that in verses 22 and 26. It is the free gift of faith alone that justifies the believer, regardless of how horrible a sinner they are. We are sinners without exception. Every single one of us in, in this room needs to be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. But we can only receive that as a gift from God. Secondly, the second distinct way we see this is that the righteousness of God comes through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So not is it only faith, but it is also the object of that faith. It is Christ Jesus alone. It is through Christ's completed work on the cross alone that redeems us. And thirdly, the third distinct way that we are we see this, this activity, this free gift, is that the righteousness of God comes by his propitiation in verse 25. I want to slow down here a little bit. Because this word is important. You need to understand this word. This propitiation. Christ's atoning sacrifice imputes his righteousness onto us. God the Father planned this from eternity past. He decreed this from eternity past. He knew that we were going to need salvation. That we were going to need justification. That we were going to need an alien righteousness. And he planned that his son, Jesus, would take the penalty of our sins in his person on the cross as our substitute. This action would appease the father's wrath. Removing that wrath from us as he accepted this perfect sacrifice. Atoning for our sins by removing them from us based entirely on Jesus' life and his death. And then he covers us with Christ's righteousness so that we would be able to boldly approach the throne of grace. That is what propitiation is. That is what propitiation accomplishes. The righteousness of God is an attribute of God's character. It is an activity of God's person. It is a free gift of God to the believer. And fourthly, and ultimately, it is his activity in reaching out to rescue all who trust in Christ by giving them, as an undeserved gift, a right status before him. Yes, that was a mouthful. Let me repeat that for you. It is his activity in reaching out to rescue. Reaching out to rescue. God's gift of Jesus on the cross was a rescue mission. Because we are all on our way to hell as sinners. God's wrath rests on sinners. But God rescues. And who does he rescue? All who trust in Christ. God rescues all who trust in Christ. Without exception. But not all without exclusion. Mean, I'm mean, i sorry, all without exclusion, but not all without exception. He will always rescue those who trust in christ but this is not a universal salvation because god knows who are his sheep jesus knew who his sheep were he knew who he was dying for he knows them by name and he calls them by name this is an exclusive rescue mission not every person is rescued but all who trust in christ How? By giving them an undeserved gift. By giving them an undeserved gift. That gift is the righteousness of God. So that they would have a right status before him. We don't deserve that righteousness. We cannot attain it on our own. Paul couldn't attain it on his own by being a Pharisee. Martin Luther couldn't attain it on his own by performing monkery we cannot attain it on ourselves on our own by being good churchmen it is an alien righteousness and this is the activity this is the ultimate aim of god it is his activity in reaching out to rescue all who trust in christ by giving them as an undeserved gift a right status before him that brings us to question number two Question number two, what does it mean, back to Romans 1, what does it mean that it, the saving righteousness of God, is being revealed in the gospel? What does that mean? What does it mean that the saving righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel? Well, it, it, it means that whenever God the Father rescues anyone, he does it 100% by grace and they receive it 100% by faith. 0% of their own merit. That famous chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. By faith, Abel. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Moses. And on and on and on it goes. By faith, all of these people appropriated that gift of righteousness By faith, through grace, by faith. Over and over and over we read in Hebrews 11. How do we know this? Because it has everything to do with the Greek tense of this word in Romans 1. The Greek word is apokalouptitai. You know this word. It is the English word apocalypse. It's used by John as a description of his letter to the seven churches in the final book of of the Bible, Revelation. Here it is in the present or continuous tense. Literally is being revealed. This is an ongoing revelation, which indicates an ongoing activity. Everywhere and every time the gospel is preached, a light shines on God's rescue mission as he saves sinners. This is an ongoing revelation. That brings us to question number three. Why then is the saving righteousness of God from faith to faith? What is is Paul saying there? Why is the saving righteousness of God from faith to faith? It Doesn't seem to make sense. There are two reasons. Number one, this is an emphatic way of saying that the righteousness of God is only appropriated by those who come empty-handed in faith and rely 100% on his grace. They don't bring anything with them. But, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we serve you in your name? Jesus says, I am going to say to those in the end times, away from me. Because I never knew you. I never knew you. You tried to get to me on your terms. You tried to get to me on your effort. You didn't come empty-handed. That's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. We must come empty-handed from faith. And this ends up, number two, the second reason, ends up in the legal declaration of being declared not guilty. We are now not guilty before the throne, and the believer is now justified by grace alone and received through faith alone. But it's not just that you walk away not guilty. It is that you have been completely transformed and re-clothed. This is Christian at Interpreter's House in John Bunyan's Classic Pilgrim's Progress. As he is on his road, he reaches Interpreter's house. And Interpreter brings him in to show him the way of salvation. He shows him Christ on the cross. He shows him what is happening. He shows him people who are trying to appropriate that faith, that justification on their own, and they cannot do it. Who get all the way to the celestial city only to be cast out. Because they've tried to do it on their own terms. And right before he leaves Interpreter's house, He is approached by three angels, if you will, who disrobe him, take off his filthy rags of sin and put on new clothes, new garments to cover him in God's clothing, in Christ's righteousness and give him the scroll that will allow him to enter into the celestial city as he goes on God's narrow path. That is, is from faith to faith. Finally, question number four. How does the Old Testament quotation from Habakkuk help us understand the saving righteousness of God? I don't want to see a show of hands, but how many of you in here have read Habakkuk recently? Exactly. So why does Paul use Habakkuk? Couldn't he have used, like, Isaiah? Or Jeremiah, a bigger book? He used Habakkuk. The righteous man shall live by faith. Turn to Habakkuk 2. I want you to to look at this passage in context. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk writes, beginning in verse 1, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision, and inscribe it on tables, tablets, that the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, His soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The proud one comes to God with his own self-sufficiency, justifying himself with his actions, with his attitudes, with his experience. But the righteous one the one who is actually justified will come in faith. He will come in faith." Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, Galatians three. "Now that no, no, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith." Again, qu- quoting Habakkuk 2:4, and also the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews 10:38 says this, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Again, Habakkuk 2:4. Faith then is taking God at his word. The opposite of faith is pride. Faith is taking God at his word in humility, knowing that you have nothing to offer. You have nothing to to give God to earn that justification. And the opposite of that faith is pride, arrogance in your own self-willed, self-justified status, intent on gaining God's approval by your own effort. Beloved, Either you wait for God to rescue you or you think you can rescue yourself. Wait on God. Call on God. Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made us to have a perfect relationship with us, but our father Adam ruined that in the garden. We are now all under the condemnation of sin and God's wrath rests on the sinner until Christ died on the cross to rescue us. It is now our opportunity to rely and trust in Christ alone for our salvation. To earn or not earn God's favor, but to be able to appropriate God's favor through what Christ has done on our behalf. Why does this still matter? Well, history tells us that the Roman Catholic Church was compelled to respond to Luther. And it did so at the famous Council of Trent 30 years later. They offered a series of proclamations on the doctrine of justification in its sixth session on January 13th, 1547. And this is what the Council of Trent said. Sinners are justified by their baptism. And not just their baptism, but their baptism in the Roman Catholic Church. Justification is by faith in Christ and a person's good works. Sinners are not justified solely by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. A person can lose his justified status. Canon 9 of the Council of Trent says this, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning thereby that no other cooperation is required for him to obtain the grace of justification, and that in no sense is it necessary for him to make preparation and be disposed by a movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. If you think that your salvation comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, let him be accursed. That's what Trent said in 1547. But, but that was almost 500 years ago. The current Catechism of the Catholic Church, published in 1985 under Pope John Paul II, teaches what was affirmed in 1965 by the Second Vatican Council, or Vatican II as it's known. Namely, that the Council of Trent in 1547 was correct in its view, Of justification the biblical view of justification by faith alone is still denied today in the Roman Catholic Church does that mean that there are no believers in the Roman Catholic Church no that's not what that means it just means that the Pope and the College of Cardinals and the higher up you go in the Catholic Church they do not believe this doctrine and that's why it matters so as we begin to think about this doctrine, as we begin to think about what Paul says, how does this apply to our lives? How, what are the implications for us? I want to give you four. Are you still trying to justify yourself through obedience to the law or some other, other form of self-righteousness? What are you doing that you think is helping you earn justification and right standing before the Lord Because whatever it is that you think you're doing that you think is going to accomplish that, it's not. It is through faith alone. Number two, are you trying to earn God's favor by being a good churchman? Are you coming to church regularly, going to small group, giving money, spending time stacking chairs, taking up and down banners? What are you doing that's a good churchman? Do you think that that's going to earn you a right standing before the Lord? It's not. Number three, have you put your trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross alone for salvation? Or are you still trying to add works? Trust in Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone is what justifies. And lastly, do you believe that God alone justifies through the shed blood of Christ on the cross? I would implore you to do just that. Believe and trust in Christ alone. Have faith in Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray. My God, I bless you that you've given us the eyes of faith. To see you as Father, to know you as a covenant-keeping God, to experience your love you planted in us. For faith is the grace of union by which we spell out our entitlement to you. Faith casts our anchor upward where we trust in you and engage you to be our Lord. Be pleased to live in us and move within us, breathing in our prayers, inhabiting our praises, speaking in our words, moving in our actions, living in our lives, causing us to grow in grace. Your incredible goodness has helped us to believe, but our faith is weak and wavering. It's light dim. Its steps tottering, its increase slow, its backslidings frequent. It should scale the heavens, but it lies groveling in the dust. Lord, fan this divine spark into a glowing flame. When faith sleeps, our hearts become an unclean thing, the fount of every loathsome desire, the cage of unclean lusts, all fluttering to escape the noxious tree of deadly fruit. The open wayside of earthly tears lord awaken faith in us to put forth its strength until all heaven fills our souls and all impurity is cast out we pray these things in your son our savior jesus christ amen